0: Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. ¶¶ Previously on somebody somewhere.
1: I mean, it seems like at every turn we shifted back to the pilot because there was bad blood, there was potentially the opportunity, there was motive.
2: I also took two handguns my Colt 380 semi automatic and the Ruger 44 mag revolver. There was only
3: one case where the defendant had an axe to grind
4: and. Had a very big, long lasting axe to grind with Tom Wales. This is Episode 7 The Gun is the Key. I'm your host, David Payne.
3: People out there who know who we killed you. We
5: will never give up our search for the truth. We will never I have no give idea. Up. They could have been a, a vacuum cleaner salesman. And I never thought I'd be here 15 years later.
4: It's hard to overstate the evolving nature of our relationship with Bruce McClung over the past six months. When we first surprised him outside his cabin, Let's just say he was not too happy, and it was probably touch and go whether the Makarov would be pulled out on us. This is a man who lives off the grid, so calling ahead is not an option. And when we later ran into him at a grocery store before another unannounced visit, he accused us of following him. We weren't, of course, but what McClung had been telling us was so provocative that, like a moth to a flame, we found ourselves driving the two hours north every few weeks to try to learn a little bit more. Here we go, back to McClung. And every time we went, McClung would give us just a little more information. And with every new detail, followed a debate about its veracity, and then a dutiful corroboration. And his track record was strong. In the world I used to inhabit, where you had to vouch to judges about the truthfulness of your confidential informants, McClung would have been a star witness. He told us about a mysterious paternity suit involving Steve Jackson, the pilot. And then there was the equally mysterious boat fire in Bellingham, where Jackson and his date had to flee naked in the middle of the night because their sleeping quarters caught fire. And with every new detail from McClung, we'd head off to the courthouse, shuttle through years of microfiche, and sure enough, check, check, check. And when it would come time to pay for all the pages we'd printed off, let's just say it wasn't pretty. So when McClung finally told us, after many visits and much corroboration, that Steve Jackson not only owned a Makarov that could be traced to a specific prior owner, but that he also overheard Jackson talking about a Makarov replacement barrel, well, that was investigative gold that needed to be mined.
6: Remember he said there was a restaurant? Right. The restaurant is gone. It has a new owner named Dan Kester. Dan can put us in touch with the original owner. He sold firearms. They sold licenses. Um, the
4: restaurant did?
6: No, no, no. The, the Schultz's hardware. Okay. The old Schultz's yep. hardware. Yep. Uh, but the restaurant's gone. That's a sidebar because I was like, oh, it's a restaurant across the street. It's gone.
4: McClung had given us a description and location of a store, where he says he witnessed something ordinary at the time, but extraordinary in our context. On a hunting trip sometime before the murder, McClung and Jackson had been camping up near Loomis, Washington, about four hours east of Seattle, when McClung decided to go back into the tiny town of Tenasket to refresh his supplies. Driving in his yellow GMC van, McClung says he was on a trip to pick up some hunting provisions, but Jackson rode along with him to pick up something else, a Makarov replacement barrel he had ordered from a sporting goods store.
6: She said, there also could be another place in Orville, but there's no restaurant, and now it's gone. So that is ready, In we have to determine how we're going to proceed
4: next. Well, that's not too far. No, go.
6: so this is where <laughs> it's up here. The other one is, like, down in here. And
4: uh, Mary was down here in Omak? Uh,
6: No, Mary was in Tabascus. Oh.
4: So what did they say about the the first one, Big Al? So we have to call him before we roll up?
6: No, no. I mean, we can go. I was just like, are you open? Do you have regular hours? He's like, well, call me and let me know you're coming. Yeah. He's like, I live 12 miles out of town. I said, okay. You know, I was trying to... I didn't know what the fuck to ask about hunting.
4: <laughs> Good point. One thing we've learned on this journey, if you're going to solve a cold case, you better be prepared to put in the miles. So we got our own provisions ready. No guns, just our recorder, bottled water, and trail mix. And we mounted up for our own type of hunting trip. Talk to me. The
6: most dangerous part of this trip might be getting out of this parking lot. I think we should um, actually go and get our bearings. I'd like to just kind of check out if Mary is around. She was the one who really gave me the background on some of the hunting lodges and some of the local stores that have been around and who the players are. And like, there's the sign,
4: to Mm-hmm. Every other car is a pickup truck.
6: Feel outnumbered?
4: I feel like I'm Georgia.
6: You're not in Kansas anymore
4: here. Except for the snow. Hold on. We make our way into the tiny town of Tenasket, population 1,000, and our quest to find the person who sold a replacement barrel for our Makarov maybe 20 years ago. And we start asking our questions.
6: As I understand it, you're the gentleman who sold Schultz's to the Kesters, is that right? Wanted to see if you would meet us for a cup of coffee at Shannon's. Did you ever source any replacement barrels? Did the feds ever come poking around?
4: We're trying to find a store that was here that would have sold hunting licenses and gun parts. Does that ring any bells for you?
6: I believe it was probably a store that was run by Al Rice. Back in the years that you were saying. And there used to be a restaurant in front of that
4: at the time. What was the name of the restaurant? Romar's. And so where will we find Al?
6: You'll find Al. He has a gun store up towards Spectacle Lake, maybe a mile or so up the road, and it's on the left-hand side. We all know Al. Everybody knows Al.
4: As we make our way through every possible shop that might have sold the barrel based on McClung's description... Most signs point to a gun store owned by a man named Al Rise, or Big Al as Jody calls him. Rise is a gun dealer who owns, not surprisingly, Al's Sporting Goods, a licensed gun shop that carries all variety of weaponry. Al's shop is now on the outskirts of town, but back in the late 90s, he was located in a location that matches the one McClung has given us.
6: said turn left at the man riding the missile you don't hear that very often do you how would anybody find this as a show there's a okay. guy riding the missile there you
4: go rise is a burly man in his late 60s wearing a rancher's canvas jacket and baseball hat living way out here in the middle of nowhere washington his shop is chock-a-block with hundreds of guns and he's genetically predisposed to suspicion when two city slickers show up on the doorstep of his gun shop. It takes a while, and frankly a little cajoling, but Al eventually agrees to be interviewed about the subject we have driven hundreds of miles to uncover. We find out he's a retired cop, and when we turn the recorder on, like a light switch, he abandons his normal persona and immediately reverts to stiff Joe Friday form as a witness on the stand.
7: Go ahead and tell me your name first. My name is Al Rice. I'm the owner of Al Sporting Goods in Tenascott, Washington. And I've been doing this for almost 21 years.
4: Now, you used to own a shop in downtown Tenascott. Yes, I did. You were a cop. You testified.
7: I can see you talking into the uh, microphone. Just pretend this isn't here. Tell me your background. You were a police officer for... Yes, for about 23 years. Where? What kind of stuff do you do? I was everything from a patrolman to chief of police. Where were you chief? There in Orville, Washington.
4: After a while, Rise eventually warms up to our interrogation. And a few nips of brandy later, his lips are, well, a little
7: looser. When you gotta go to Loomis, Washington, you're a hurting you, right?
6: <laughs> <laughs> Why? This is, this is one of the best afternoons I've had. Oh, come on. <laughs>
4: before I share what tickled Thank Big you. Al so much about our visit, we first want to find out what he remembered in dry owl style.
7: I was
6: just going to ask what kind of stuff you sold
7: in your store. It was the same thing that you see in my store here. It was guns, scopes, ammunition, scope mounting supplies.
6: And hunting and fishing license? No. No?
7: I never did hunting and fishing license in Tenasket.
8: Mm-hmm.
7: And I showed you a picture of a van, an old
4: GMC yellow van. Did that refresh your recollection on anything?
7: No, not by itself, because there was multiple vans, basically the same color scheme, and I had no reason to register any of them. I'll tell you what would help me the most if I had a late picture of that McCulley or whatever his name is. McClung. McClung. Then I could tell if I had a later, I mean a a relevant picture, or at least 10 years then I could tell you at least if he had come in my store.
4: Not surprisingly, I suppose, when you step back from it, Big Al's not remembering much during our questioning. So it is with bated breath that I ask him the question we all want to know. And he delivers his answer in true Big Al form. You don't remember ever selling a replacement barrel for a Makarov to anybody, do you?
7: No, I never did those kind of parts. Those kind of parts could be gotten by mail order. I didn't do it because the parts could be wrong and then they'd want me to eat it. <laughs> and so if they were on their own for them. No, I never did those kind of parts. Yeah.
4: I mean, I'm sorry. I know we're investigating a murder here, but that delivery, though. And to be fair to us, it's one of those you-should-have-seen-my-week laughs. We'd driven 300 miles one way to get that dead-end answer.
6: So the FBI, back in the... No one's ever come poking around other than us asking you questions about a Makarov or firearms back in the day.
7: No, this is the first I've heard about any of this.
6: And you had never heard of this guy named... (inaudible) or coming up here going hunting with some buddies?
7: Not that I know of. Like I said before, there'd be people come in and out and we'll talk a little bit.
4: you realize you've created a complete dead end for us here?
7: <laughs> I've had a good day.
4: <laughs>
6: I can tell you you ruined our day, but the fact is you're a lovely gentleman and we've enjoyed well, the conversation. Well, you know,
7: I told you the truth. I've told you the truth 100% down the road. What'd you say? And, and, and you can check that out. Well, I've showed you. I didn't have to just beak off. I showed you.
4: all levity aside, which only served to mask our disappointment at not being able to advance this investigation. We hope that the FBI will use its resources to further track down this lead and get to the bottom of whether there are any records proving or disproving these details. And even though Big Al wasn't able to advance our independent investigation on the barrel, we realized we were by no means done understanding what the ballistic evidence could tell us about the killer. If the FBI was right in their suspicions about the pilot, the question was, could he have even pulled off the shot? Or should we be looking for a paid sniper, as Ralph believed? Why don't we start by uh, getting a little bit about your background? I see you spent uh, a few years with the little outfit called the Navy.
5: Yeah, so I did 23 years in the uh, Navy SEAL teams, you know, deployed a few times in there. But I think the SEALs by you know very nature are professional shooters. That's what we are. We're professional gunfighters.
4: What kind of Jason Boer is an expert among experts when it comes to sniping. We lay out the known facts in the whales case to get his opinion on our questions. Can you give us a sense of how difficult a shot that would have been based on what we have outlined?
5: Not very, honestly. Thirty feet is not far.
6: But using a Macrov, tell us about that variable.
5: So whoever used it's using a subpar gun and they're using a very very subpar bullet. How many times 3 to 6 times the person was shot?
4: 3 to 6 shots were fired to hit,
5: which does not show a level of real competence. So if you're asking was this a very trained person? I would say no. If it's somebody that actually knew what they were doing would I, would only have one or two shots and did he die immediately or did he so he's hit in the head and the torso?
4: He was hit in the neck and the torso. He died three hours later. At the hospital.
5: The fact that the person left the casings is another huge telltale. That is not something that a trained person that is... Unless someone was trying to make this look amateurish, there's nothing in there that says highly qualified individual that's doing this.
4: So wait, not a hard shot, but amateurish. And not professional unless it was a professional trying to look amateurish. But on this point, Jason was clear.
5: Could there be that someone was trying to make it look amateurish? I don't know. Maybe. It's actually the opposite. All these show that it was not a highly competent individual.
4: Except for the fact that he hit him. It's
5: not very far though, honestly. It sounds more of what we would call spray and pray. None of that falls in the category of requiring a, a high degree of competence. If you're really wondering, you know, how hard it is to do that is to go to a gun range and see within one day how hard it is for you to hit, call an e-silhouette, at 30 feet, at 10 yards. It's incredibly easy.
6: Says you. All
4: right, are we going to shoot from the
3: table? Well, um, it depends on what we're going to do. We can do either.
4: So just like Bruce McClung we had to see for ourselves whether the shot that killed Tom Wales required a sniper's accuracy.
3: This is a a phrase that's been around in shooting for a while.
4: Aim small, miss small.
8: And the idea is-
4: Our investigation into the world of ballistics and firearms eventually led us to a forensic scientist and marksman named Aaron Brudenell in Arizona. Good morning, Aaron. How are you? Let's start by just going and state your name, spell your- Brudenell works for a state law enforcement agency in Arizona, and he's an expert in ballistic forensics. We asked him to do some test fires for us with Makarovs, but first, that shot. All right. So, tell me about what we're going to do out at the range. So, what I've brought is two different Makarov pistols.
3: One of them has a replacement barrel. Okay. Great. Thanks. Do you want to? Oh, do
4: you, what's the? I don't know what my question was. Um,
6: I know. Do uh, I last I hadn't been in your head, so.
4: And my head would be talking loud and clear to me soon enough as we ventured onto the range with two dozen other people firing their semi-automatic weapons. I shot targets under all sorts of conditions and distances, even while walking rapidly forward with a silencer on the Makarov replacement barrel. It's not as hard a shot as we thought.
6: Tell me about that. Why?
4: Well, I mean, I was moving... With a silencer on the gun, so that affects the sights. That's got to affect some of the reliability. I'm no expert. I don't shoot a lot. But I hit the target at least five out of six times. Maybe six out of six, depending on whether that was a double shot. And Jody, who doesn't shoot at all, well, she hit the main mass of the target, too. Five out of eight times. Shooting 380 rounds out of a Makarov replacement barrel. And so... After talking to expert shooters and our own day at the range, we were prepared to shoot down the notion that the person who killed whales had to be a trained sniper. Yes, we get that this was on a range, in daylight, and without the variables we all know about. Yet we were now convinced the Navy SEAL was right. This probably could have been done by anyone. But after spending the day with Brudenil, there was something I was no longer convinced of. Whether the murder weapon was even a Makarov, Describe for me what a GRC exam is. GRC stands for
3: General Rifling Characteristics. So it is a database of rifling measurements.
4: And so what I'm looking when you work in a cold case, it's like you only have tiny pieces of a puzzle, and you're trying to figure out where they fit. And one piece we were really struggling with was how the spent casings and bullet slugs could lead us to the gun and the killer. So when you have a bullet that's gone through any type of firearm barrel you're going to get marks left on it the way that you guys talk about it as ballistics experts is five lands and grooves with a left twist give me a sense of that
3: yeah and if it was a five lands and grooves and a left twist we might abbreviate just five left or six
4: right in the similar examples can you give me the layman description of what a land and groove is sure the
3: inside of the barrel of a gun has a series of grooves that are cut into
4: it, and there's a spiral running inside the barrel. If you're shooting out of a Makarov handgun, how many lands and grooves and what kind of twist are you going to see if you're firing a 380 caliber ammo through that?
3: A regular Makarov pistol is going to have four lands and grooves and a right-hand twist, which is really common
4: in among all... Of the in our case, though, the <laughs> FBI the reported slugs recovered with materially different markings. When they first recovered evidence from the crime scene, they have reported that they recovered bullets with six left, six lands and grooves with a left-handed twist, and these bullets were three eighty caliber. How big a list of potential weapons are there that would fit that characteristic? If I look at
3: the GRC database, just three eighty automatic and six left is a full page or so of, of data. 50, 60 types of guns that could possibly yeah. be there? As many as 100, perhaps, yeah. And remember, the database is only as good as the data that's gone into it. But for the most common things, it typically represents what's available and what's out there in circulation.
4: Which made us wonder, if there were this many guns that produced slugs with six left markings, how was it the FBI concluded the specific gun used was a Makarov with a specific replacement barrel? Of course, there were several possibilities. Scientists can refine that number by measuring the lands and grooves and by examining the spent casings to see where the pins struck, something we wanted to understand more about from Brudenell. But the other nagging question was whether the FBI knew their prime suspect owned a Makarov and were consciously or unconsciously trying to get their evidence to fit their suspect. What threw us off there was, if they did know, why did they do that nationwide barrel search for 10 years? Are you familiar with the replacement barrel that the FBI has identified as being involved in
3: this murder? Yeah, it's a, a company that made them as federal arms. But I understand that the FBI zoomed in on this because the rifling characteristics of this particular barrel were fairly specific and unique in terms of the firearms that are out there that just shoot this ammunition. What were those rifling characteristics? There are six lands and grooves with a
4: left-hand twist. So you've done some testing. You've fired a three eighty caliber bullet through a Makarov replacement barrel from Federal Arms. Yes, I have. How long a list of possible weapons matched and came within the range of your measurements? It uh, looks like 25 in this particular
3: search, and that doesn't include narrowing the uh, dimensions at all. That's just all the six
4: left three eighties that I could find in the list. So there is a significant list of weapons that could have been used that would have revealed six left.
3: Yes, yeah, a good list of common manufacturers, et cetera.
4: Give me a sense of some
3: of those manufacturers. So I'm going to go from the bottom here. I've got a couple from a company called Unique, a few Smith & Wessons, Davis Industries, Llama, Daewoo. And these are all weapons that have six left. Yeah, they're all six left, and some of them have... Rifling dimensions within the same range as the, the 380 Makarov combination. I'm looking here and I'm, I'm finding a, a nice, reasonable page of them here. There's a company
4: called Colt. A company called Colt. Someone we had met had one of those.
2: I also took two handguns my Colt 380 semi automatic and the Ruger 44 mag revolver.
4: What does the database show with respect to a Colt 380 versus a Makarov with a replacement barrel in terms of the measurement between the lands and grooves? How distinct is that? From
3: what I've seen, they appear to be similar. And like I said, it's not an exact measurement, and there might be a dozen entries of Colt 380s, and there might be some that are outside the range of the Federal Arms barrel, for example. But basically, I see them as overlapping, you know, looking at the, the numbers roughly.
4: Explain that to me. Like, are they within one one
3: thousandth of an well, inch I, I, or what? Sure. I can kind of give you a good example. Of the, the test specimen I looked at, we're talking, you know, thousandths of an inch. And there's some variability in that, too, because... These are measurements, you know, made by human examiners, and
4: and there's going to be slight differences from measurement to measurement. It sounds a little bit like an art, not a science, when you get down to the very finest points of these comparisons. We have to realize in any measurement, it doesn't matter what it is, there's
3: going to be what we call a variance. And usually when I hand out a list of possible guns, there's a little disclaimer at the bottom that says this list isn't all-inclusive, and there may be something out there that even I in
4: the database have never heard of. So, The FBI has been very specific in believing that the gun that was used in this case was a Makarov fitted with a replacement barrel from Federal Arms that gave it the six left rifling characteristics. Do you think it's possible that they got that information wrong or they got to that conclusion wrong
3: without looking at the evidence i'd be hard-pressed and i should say that just to begin with we're all talking about this and i have some expertise in the field but what i don't have is firsthand direct knowledge i didn't get a chance to look at the actual bullets or cartridge cases directly and i guess the three possibilities here we could consider would be if you had a colt 380 pistol a makarov with a 380 replacement barrel and then a Makarov with a 9x18 Makarov replacement barrel.
4: And just when I think I've wrapped my head around all the range of possibilities at play here, Brudenell lobs in another.
3: This is hypothetical, and and I don't believe it's a realistic scenario, but if you had, say, four cartridge cases and four bullets at a scene, there's no way to be sure that those cartridge
4: cases and those bullets go to each other, unless you have the gun itself, but it's highly likely that they do match since it was a crime scene and a murder and they were on the scene
3: within minutes. Exactly. And this is one of those one arm man scenarios that the bullet and the cartridge case can be presumed to go together, but you absolutely can't scientifically prove it until you
4: do the test fires with the gun itself. I hadn't thought of that. So is it possible that somebody could have left shell casings at the scene? that weren't associated with the slugs. That is a physical possibility. The shooting happened
3: in the dark. You'd have to be able to recover the cartridge cases that were fired. It's a little
4: outlandish, but not completely unheard of as a possibility. And of all the possibilities we had considered, that wasn't one. But as he said it, I couldn't help thinking about the mysterious round of ammunition McClung had found in his spare clip.
2: One night after the murder, while I was in the living room, I took out the 380 and pulled the clip from it and stripped out all the rounds. All the bullets were 90 grain hollow points with no post in the center. I then pulled out my spare clip. The second round down was a nickel cased hydro shock hollow point with a post in the center. One of the things that had crossed my mind was maybe Steve had set me up by putting the hydroshock round in my spare clip for some reason. I was alarmed to say the least, scared, and wondered what I should do with the round. While driving out to the cabin on a rainy, dark night, I rolled down the left driver's window and threw the round out of the window across the road. I was headed east on the Mount Baker Highway and threw it across the road into a rough, grassy area on the north side of the road in the 2200 to 2300 block, just past the Everson-Goshen Road as near as I recall.
4: And just like Rod Rosenstein, who said he would leave no stone unturned, Jody and I pack up the car yet again and head two hours north in the rain, where we would spend a couple hours with a borrowed metal detector and shovel, searching the tall grass for the missing bullet. The good
6: people in America need to start recycling, clearly. they the window. Check separate there and get some.
4: I'm thinking more down by Everett Goshen.
6: Yeah, let's go down there.
4: I mean, we're right here. We're right past Everson Goshen, so... Somewhere in here is our sweet spot. I'll spare you the details of our excursion to find this bullet in the haystack. But the headline is this. It was a bust. Depending, of course, on how you look at it. There have been a lot of wild goose chases in this thing, but that was probably the biggest one so far. <laughs>
6: what a fucking boondoggle.
4: <laughs> that was a waste of time.
6: It wasn't a waste of time. Dude, we found 80 bucks, <laughs> a diamond, a bolt. <laughs> a diamond? And some insurance cards from Linda McIntyre. Poor Linda McIntyre had her wallet stolen. That yeah, stinks, that man. That does
4: suck. Why'd they throw the money away, though? Maybe it's counterfeit. Could be. Maybe Kim Powell did it. <laughs> That's a leap, Payne, a leap. Maybe a leap, but not much of one. One of the things we noticed while searching the tall grass was just how close we were to the compound where the pilot and his partner, Kim Powell, had spent years building the helicopter that put them in Tom Whale's crosshairs, just 3.2 miles away to be exact. A coincidence? We had been searching for Powell for months, a search that took us to multiple states, and even involved an interesting run-in with some cattle in Texas. He has a gardener's gate too tight. We wondered if Steve Militesh and Mike Carter had had any better luck in
1: finding Kim Powell. Kim Powell's always been sort of a key. I don't know whether you folks have talked to him. Good luck with that. He's a ghost. Yeah, he's hard to find.
4: We've been chasing him for months. He was involved in that helicopter case.
1: He was the other co-defendant with the pilot and the partner with the pilot in Intrex. I tried to find Kim Powell. I had some conversation with, I believe, with one of his lawyers. And Powell and the pilot had had a pretty serious falling out by that point. I think there were a lot of finger pointing and people blaming people for how they found themselves in this situation with the U.S. Attorney's Office crawling up their butts. And he was a businessman. He was angry. He felt he'd been Probably unfairly treated by the government and maybe double-crossed or or at least abandoned by the pilot, and uh, he was he was pretty angry. I never got a chance to interview him. He avoided us to begin with and referred me to his attorney. And later on, it just became kind of a non-issue as as the thing proceeded. It was, I think that you're accurate in saying that the focus of this investigation pretty quickly came down to the pilot, and once. Especially early on, the first few years, we were following the feds, and that's where the feds were going.
4: Of course, we weren't following the feds. We were doing the opposite to see if a different lens would work. But I had asked Agent Ron Bone in our Starbucks phone conversation what the FBI's read on Kim Powell was.
6: So, David, I'm curious what Bone said about partner in Intrax, the helicopter
4: company. Ron Bone told me that Kim Powell was also kooky. That was the word he used. He wasn't quite sure if Powell was telling the truth. Powell told them, you know, he could believe that was capable of doing the murder, but that Powell, you know, was clearly self interested, that he really just wanted to clear his name. He told Bone that he had nothing to do with the guy. So the overall impression was that Powell was very self serving and kooky, and they didn't know what to do with him. And there was another person in this case that the FBI described almost the same way, and who would be equally difficult to pin down. And in him, the feds thought they had hit pay dirt in their wild goose chase for the Makarov replacement barrel. A man named Albert Lee Kwan. The FBI hadn't been poking around to ask it for a replacement barrel. They had found their fertile ground much closer to home in a clapboard house in the Seattle suburb of Bellevue, just minutes away from the pilot's Bo arts home. I had asked Agent Gomez what happened there. One of the leads that seemed like a good lead was that a replacement barrel was, in fact, sold by a gun dealer here in Bellevue named Albert Lee Kwan.
8: What can you share about that process? I know that he was looked at by the investigative team as having sold that, but I don't believe he was cooperative in the FBI's attempts to to determine who he sold it to or where it was sold or whether he had other barrels. and
4: Well, he was held on a material witness warrant for like 23 days.
8: Yeah, and that's basically an attempt to coerce somebody to cooperate. And from my perspective as an outsider looking in and as a former profiler, I'm saying, well, maybe he's acting like a person who doesn't like the FBI and federal law enforcement.
4: He's a gun dealer. Yeah,
8: and he's a gun dealer. And now you've taken away his livelihood— or threatening to take away his livelihood and implying that he had some guilty knowledge and that's more inducement not to cooperate
4: i wanted to understand better why quan may have not cooperated with federal investigators what about it made the feds lock him up for 23 days i asked agent bone
6: david what did he tell you about quan
4: so he said quan was an interesting situation because of some records that they found, and they didn't know whether he was involved or whether he had hired him or someone else. I pressed him on this point: of Why would Kwan be involved in killing Tom Wales? What would the motive be? And he said he may have done it because he saw Tom on TV. As simple as that. So we've heard that theory before: that people saw Tom on TV. He was the leading voice in the area for gun control, and that this guy was just off. He had many odd affects, OCD behaviors. He described this situation where he returned a watch to Quan that he had taken, I guess, as part of a search warrant, and Quan used a plastic bag to receive the watch back and then put it on his wrist without touching it. He also said that in Quan's house, everything is wrapped in plastic. So he paints a picture of a guy who had some oddities and behaviors and was very reluctant to help the government and that that cast a lot of suspicion on Quan and they wanted to find out more about his involvement. And as we know, the government spent a lot of resources trying to sweat out Quan to see if he had anything to do with this case.
6: Did he talk at all about what the sweating process entailed and what that looked like?
4: Well, the term he used was sledgehammer. You know, we were like a sledgehammer in this case. We had a lot of authority, and we were going to use it to get to the bottom of what happened. So they obviously used a sledgehammer. They prosecuted him for guns that they found at his house, and nothing came of it. And so it makes you wonder whether their suspicions were well-placed, or this was just a guy who had reason to be suspicious of the police. And there was one other guy who fell into that category and who the government would use a sledgehammer on for the next 16 years. The pilot. Next week on Somebody Somewhere...
8: The truth is, they have been extremely vague about those very questions. We've tried to pin them down exactly what time, to who and how long. So then the concept became, let's see if we can get him to somehow confess to the crime.
6: As an AUSA, I never encountered a scenario that even remotely approximated a situation like that.
8: Wow. And did he confess?
3: No. Maybe because he didn't do it.
6: Life's a
0: foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change, turn the ship another
4: way. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Every week they're bringing their A-game, and we couldn't have done it without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. An original score and voiceover work is provided by Hallie Payne. To hear the full version of Hallie's song, Cold, stay tuned after the credits for a special release, which you can buy on iTunes. Social media videos and artwork provided by Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally... If you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening.
0: You just want someone to hold Say that Let mm-hmm. will